All right, I guess we'll get started now. Uh, I am Aman Bathija, transportation reporter with the <coughs> Texas Tribune. Thanks for joining us. This is the uh, Future of Trade panel. And uh, it's an hour-long event, and we're going to talk with our panelists for probably about 40, 45 minutes or so, and then um, open it up to questions from you. Uh, I'm supposed to tell you to please turn off your phones unless you are tweeting. And if you are, the hashtag we are using is TribuneFest. Uh, so let me introduce our panelists. Uh, start on that side. Pause for me is uh, Secretary Hope Andrade. Uh, Esperanza Hope Andrade is Texas's 107th Secretary of State. She was appointed by Governor Rick Perry to the position in 2008. Secretary Andrade, a successful entrepreneur in San Antonio, serves as Texas's Chief Elections Officer, Chief International Protocol Officer, and Border Commerce Coordinator for Governor Perry. Previously, she served as a Chair of the Texas Transportation Commission, and she has also held leadership roles with the Greater San Antonio Chamber of Commerce, Trade Alliance of San Antonio, United Way, and the San Antonio Symphony. Next to her is uh, Dr. Esther Rodriguez Silva, who is a researcher at the Global Supply Chain Laboratory, a distribution-focused research lab at Texas A&M University, where she conducts applied research and industry projects in the area of regional development. She holds a doctoral degree in science and technology and a master's degree in transportation and information systems engineering, both from Kobe University in Japan. She has worked with international institutions engaged on supply chain management and intermodal transportation safety, and I think this is really cool. She is fluent in English, French, Spanish, Japanese, and Portuguese. Wow. <laughs> and uh, we didn't plan it this way, but apparently we have a girl side and a guy side. <laughs> um, next is Nelson Bolido, who's, I'm pronouncing that right, right? Bolido, yes. Uh, president of the Border Trade Alliance, a grassroots nonprofit organization that serves as a forum for participants to address key issues affecting trade, travel, and security in North America. He's also founder of Bolido and Associates, a public strategies, multicultural marketing, and real estate consulting firm. He previously served as the private sec in the private sector division of FEMA and on the, household sec on the Homeland Security Advisory Council. Uh, he also helped build his family's music distribution business into a Hispanic 500 company, and he is currently a voting member of the Grammys and the Latin right. Grammys. Oh. If anyone to ask him about that, <laughs> not, nothing to do with transportation, <laughs> but uh. <laughs> we could work that in somehow. <laughs> and last but not least, we have Jean Garza, who is director of field operations for the U.S. Customs and Border Protection Office in Laredo. Uh, the Laredo field office processes the largest amount of commercial traffic along the entire U.S.-Mexican border, with more than 104 billion dollars in merchandise entering in fiscal year 2010 through its 23 crossings, six airports, and one seaport. Previously, he was port director of the Laredo Port of Entry, where he oversaw the largest inland port in the United States, managing more than 800 employees, four international bridges, one airport, a railroad bridge, and an annual budget of $12 million. Thank you all for joining us. Absolutely. Really appreciate this. Uh, first off, um, trade is such a broad topic, and there's so many things we'd like to touch on. I thought perhaps the best way to kind of uh, tap all your strengths is just to ask, uh, if you could discuss this trade-related issue that you feel isn't getting the attention it deserves right now uh, in, among policymakers or, or the public at large, I guess, uh, is there an issue that should be in the front of minds of people who really care about Texas and trade, but it probably isn't right now? And I'll, I'll start with you, Mr. Garza. Well, I think that uh, since the inception of NAFTA, which is what really has put all these extra trucks out on I-35 coming north and south. Um, just to give you an example how the, the, the traffic increased on, on the border, uh, specifically uh, in my area, which I'm the director of field operations for uh, Laredo, which covers all the ports of entry from Del Rio to Brownsville. So um, what we saw is uh, an increase uh, of about 400,000 plus trucks in the region, and it peaked out right before 9-11 at 1.5 million. Uh, it went down to about 1.3 right after 9-11. And uh, during the recession, uh, things got a little slow. Um, and you have to un understand the dynamics of why it, it, it really affected uh, the area. Uh, Laredo, the, the largest inland port, uh, the number one import and export is automobiles and automobile parts. So during the recession, automobiles were not really selling uh, that really slowed down. Uh, Detroit saw a decrease in trucks, uh, and so did our region. Um, and that happened, right? It started going at, at about September. By March of the following year, we started seeing the numbers rising again. Uh, and one of the unique things about the border is if the peso remains stable 
uh, that is a key factor uh, in the economy being more or less the way it is. Uh, the, re the recession happened in the U.S., but on the border, we actually saw the merchandise was crossing uh, and it was rising, the numbers were rising. Um, in 2010, uh, we saw that, uh, and specifically I'm talking about the Puerto Laredo, which probably handles uh, right around 6,000 trucks a day northbound with, with the two cargo lots and about another 6,000 southbound. Um, in 2010, uh, we saw it rise to 1.5. Uh, and the close of 2011, we saw it rise to 1.6, which we've never seen that, those numbers before. So what is, is, is happening is that there, there is trade the, that uh, has come uh, from other areas. Um, and um, uh, we, we, we have seen that. Uh, it continues to, to grow. And uh, with uh, some of the things that are, are in the horizon, we expect even uh, to keep on growing uh, in the following years to come. So it's kind of recession-proof, you'd almost say. Um, as long as the peso is stable, and mm -hmm. during the Calderon administration, it has remained very stable. Mm -hmm. uh, and as long as it, 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 I remember, you know, back uh, in past administrations when the peso started to float, you literally saw the traffic on the border just stop because you don't want to get caught with merchandise uh, and having to pay in pesos or pay in dollars, whichever one of those, you know, you're, which, it depends on which way you're going. So yes, the peso has very much uh, effect on what happens at the border. Mr. Bolito? You know, thank you. Uh, thank you for the invitation of being here. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's a few issues uh, that I believe need to be brought up a little bit more on our, in the newspapers and in the media that perhaps is not uh, shared. One of those is uh, you know, the infrastructure funding. Uh, you know, you, you have the average port that we have on our borders is uh, 1960s, 1970s, if you look at the entire, if you average the, uh, the, uh, the port age. Um, in order to be able to do more trade, uh, you can't replace the actual bricks and mortar. So if I, if I was going to sum it up in three things, both well, infrastructure, manpower, and technologies, three things that we advocate for immensely across our U.S. borders is not only do you need to have the bricks and mortars to be able to have more, more lanes, more uh, uh, ways that we can have that traffic cross our borders, but also we need to have more of these guys in blue out there, more of these guys in blue to make sure that all lanes are always open, and with that, obviously, the funding of overtime and, and, and that's required to be able to staff, properly staff our, our ports of entry. Um, and obviously the technology that goes with those, with those items to make sure that, you know, we're getting as much information to our guys in the booth prior to the arrival not only of the, um, the trucks, but also the privately owned vehicles that are crossing, uh, and even the pedestrian traffic as well. Uh, the, the transportation funding in the last two years has been zero. Uh, it's been zeroed out, where before we had hundreds of millions of dollars uh, to do port infrastructure upgrades, last two years it's been zero unfortunately. One of the things that we are working on right now is a public-private partnership bill that we've uh, worked with uh, Senator Hutchinson and Senator Cornyn to, to introduce uh, in, in, uh, in legislation that not only helps look at creative ways to finance these ports of entry because if there's not going to be any money, well we need to figure out a way because the need is still there. And like Gene is saying, you know, we're, we're looking at six to eight percent year over year uh, increase in trade. You just recently had a 20, uh, an announcement by the auto industry of a combined $20 billion in, uh, in manufacturing, auto manufacturing in Mexico, now surpassing auto manufacturing in Canada. So these things are growing. People are leaving uh, China, leaving India, and looking at, at, at coming into Mexico and creating jobs. And that's great for the North American economy. However, without those three items, uh, and, and, a, and, and, a, and the PPP bill that we've tried to, we've, we've introduced, um, it's going to be tough to sustain mm -hmm. and it's going to be tough to, to grow. For Texas, it's about a 10 to $11 billion a month business. We do more in Texas in one month than Arizona does in a year in trade. So just if you can figure out how many jobs that, that's tied to here in the state of Texas or in the country, um, we want to grow that. This is something we want to grow. These are entries that we want to grow, uh, what's happening on those ports of entry, as opposed to some folks when they're always focusing on what happens in between the ports of entry. 
So these are things that I think uh, should be focused more on the good things on the border, the good things that are happening, uh, and how the U.S. Can, can, can assist Mexico in curbing violence and other things on, on their soil. But you know, this, is, this is a major trade uh, uh, vehicle for the United States, and it can, it's only going to get better. On the PPP bill, I, it just makes me think about how uh, roads in Texas have gone that way a lot, public-private partnerships. And there's been some political pushback. Sure. People worried that the roads should be all public and private entities shouldn't be involved. Are you hearing any of that on the ports? or? Well, the ports are already told. So, so one of the things that you have is, let's say we have a text dot comes up with, and I'll give you an example, the Ansaldúas port of entry comes up with uh, $7, 8000000 million to build an outbound inspection station. The Ansaldúas port of entry is in the McAllen area, um, just so you can know geographically where it's at. Um, they come up with some money. They approach uh, GSA, because they're the owner of the port, right? GSA is the owner of the port. And they say, well, we, we want to build this outbound inspection space station to make sure that we're, we're, look, we're, we're prepared for the future, more, more future traffic to look at, make sure we're not importing or exporting guns or cash to the cartels. They come back and say, well, we, we, we can't do that. Well, we want, to, we want to be able to contribute. Well, there's no mechanism. So even though we have the money at the, at the state level to be able to to give to our ports of entry, again, for more traffic because, you know, th this is going to help us. The, the, the faster we can put people over our, that border, that means more people in our hotels, more gasoline that we're going to sell, you know, more people shopping at our malls. I mean, it's, it's a windfall for, the United, for, for Texas. And um, so they couldn't take it. So that prompted us to look at creative ways to come up with some options where there is no options. And that public-private partnership bill would do that. The second part of that public-private partnership bill also allows, uh, through a tolling mechanism, which most of the bridges in Texas are, are tolling except for one, um, to use some of those revenues to help fund overtime dollars for our guys in blue, the customs agents. Um, and the reason being is because if, that, if there's peak periods out there that perhaps the federal government that may not have the money, but it makes sense for the community to invest in that to get people over faster, because again, at the end of the day, they're going to get it back. So it's, uh, I think it's something that is absolutely necessary. It gives options where there is no options, especially for those non-tolled or 100% owned uh, uh, ports west of El Paso. Well, thank you. And now for the girls' team, uh, <laughs> Dr. Silva. Yes, well, besides uh, <coughs> um, of what is being commented already, I think I, I would like to explore three issues that uh, are related more into how trade is conducted. And the first one is more on terms of uh, the trade imbalance. And we've been talking about the idea of the US corporations that needs to export more. So the large corporations, the large firms, if they want to increase their exports, they can do it. However, there is this big amount of, of corporations that are the SMEs, the small and medium-sized enterprises, that are really contributing in a large amount of the economy of the United States. And those are the ones that really bring a lot of knowledge, a lot of uh, new ideas, the, the application of technology goes directly into uh, their, their um, uh, use. But those are the ones that struggle more. And they struggle more because uh, two reasons. One, if they want to conduct international business, they don't know how to do it. So first, probably, topic to address more into details is educate the SMEs into this uh, challenge that is the, the doing business globally. The second aspect, I think, has to do with, and it's a little bit more complex problem, with the distribution. What is really the supply chain flow, and what does it mean to get the products into the market? So in that case, I think uh, we have to motivate or, or um, enforce the ability of US distributors to do distribution outside United States. It's distribution is enormous industry in the United States. Distributors in the United States has built a lot of network, really, and it's been doing very successful in all the verticals to distribute products to the market. And that is linked with the SMEs because in 
they don't know how to get the product because the, the SMEs doesn't sell the product directly to these international markets. They use local distributor. And these local distributors in all, in all those countries are not well developed. For example, there is not a distribution network in China. Or, they, or sometimes in South America, well, it's not as we understand. They have their own uh, local and regional uh, uh, distributor networks, but it's not as, an, as uh, we call the national accounts level. On the other hand, there is also the issue of uh, uh, misunderstanding distribution versus retails or other activities. So one, one component will be educate SMEs. The second one is bring distributors or, or motivate US distributors to do uh, distribution networks internationally. And the third topic that I think is not being explored yet, and it should be, is more into the legal aspects and has to do with local content. Because we still don't know what local content does for business. And if we understand that because of NAFTA, the three uh, countries, Mexico, Canada, and United States, are very well integrated and understand local content. But if we go to Brazil, it's, it's, it's a very sensitive topic. Corporations doesn't understand what local content does. So I think it should be a dialogue, international dialogue, on local content. And probably we need to try to standardize somehow uh, uh, these, these rules, because if we don't understand well, they can be misunderstood as protectionism, and that then the, to the topic becomes politicized. Mm -hmm. So those are the three areas that I think needs to be explored more. Thank you. Uh, Secretary? Yes, well, good morning, and uh, let me first start off by saying thank you so much for bringing us together. And to, the, to my panelists, members, it's great to have you all here. I'm always so <coughs> impressed with Dr. Silva's resume that I want to go promote her throughout the rest <laughs> of the world. Uh, so thank you for being in Texas. And Nelson, thank you for everything that you do to advocate uh, trade. And Jean, thank you so much for the great job that you do. You know, they make things so much easier for me because I go out and I promote Texas throughout the world. Texas has been the number one exporting state for the past 10 years. You know, number, our number one trading partner is Mexico. Number two, it's Canada. Number three is China. Number four is Brazil. And number five is the Netherlands. The good news is that every, every other country wants to increase trade with Texas. That's the good news. What I come back with is, how are we going to do that? So thanks to them, that's what we, we need to make sure that we keep the movement of goods and products in, in a, an efficient flow. But for that, you need money. You know, when I was on transportation, I was always concerned with the fact that no one understood the border communities. And yet, we've got 24 international border crossings. I have to be careful with the numbers, because I know you all are checking them. Uh, so I, I'm, I'm going to be more general. You know, border communities are so different, yet they get the same amount of funding. When you hear that 3 million trucks pass through our border crossings, it doesn't mean that we get more funding and they're using our roads. And you know what? These trucks are passing through Texas to other states that are benefiting from what's going through our state. And then our border communities, they may have a population of 50,000 at night, but during the day they have a population of 100,000. And so our border communities are so unique, yet few people understand them. People that try to make decisions for our border communities have never been to the border, right? That's right. You know, when I hear of federal funding for our border crossings, Arizona gets more money than Laredo, and Laredo is our number one inland port. And you think, how do you justify that? Maybe because you've never come to Laredo. So for me, that's the frustration, because I get to see, I get to hear and meet with all these companies, with all these representatives of other countries that are saying, you know what, Texas? You've been named the best state to do business in. You're the best state in the nation. We want to do business with you. We want to bring our investment to Texas because you're solid. And in the back of my mind, I'm saying, yeah, come on. And then I come back to Nelson and I say, oh my god, what are we going to do? So you see, that's, my, that's the state's challenge, is that, yes, 
we're an incredible strong state, but will we continue? You know, the New York Times said Texas is the future. That's great, but what is the future going to be for Texas? So we, we need to prepare. And those funding, those transportation funding challenges, they're there. They're not going to get any better. I don't see any new revenue source. And when I was on transportation, the fact that we provided our communities with tools that they could put in their toolbox and use however they wish, not that we would force them to use it, but if they said, you know what, I've got ABC company moving here, and I need some road improvement. And the state says, well, maybe 20 years. And they said, okay, you know what, I'm going to open my toolbox, I'm going to see which of these tools I can build the road now. And that's what Texas was provi or is providing, is options. And I'm glad to hear that now we've got public-private partnerships with ports. So that may be the future. I think the confusion with the public is that we've never built infrastructure like that. And so we haven't done a good enough job in educating the public about these new tools. It doesn't mean that because you get private equity to come build a road that they're going to roll it up and take it back if it's not effective or if it's not, it doesn't work out. The road stays, but we need the private sector to come in and invest. So to me, the challenge is that trade is so important for the state of Texas. Okay. I, since the Eagle Fort Shale has come about, I will tell you that every country has come in with wanting to set up a pipe-fitting manufacturing plant in our state <laughs> to be able to supply all the pipes <coughs> that uh, you're going to need for Eagle Fort Shale. And, and Monday I was at an oil rig, and now I understand the need for pipes. But think about it. That means that they're going to be traveling more on our roads. They actually want to also be able to export pipes out from Texas. And so we've got so much going on. Ladies and gentlemen, I. The reason I get so excited is because I see it. I witness it. I'm speaking to those people. They're coming here, and we better be prepared. Because if we're not, they'll stop, and we'll stop being competitive, and we'll stop being the leader in job creation, and it will affect us. The reason that we were the last ones in the recession, the first ones out, was exactly because of this. So absolutely, our challenges to continue being at the stage that we're performing, it's funding for infrastructure. And the second question that we're asked is workforce. We have to have an educated and prepared workforce. Thank you. And um, you talked about being prepared. One big issue in trade right now is the Panama Canal is in the midst of an expansion. I think the first such expansion in like a century. Uh, and when it, when it um, is completed in 2015, larger ships are going to be able to get through the canal. And there is an expectation by some that this could be very big for Texas, if Texas is prepared in terms of if, if its ports can handle the bigger ships. Uh, just at, at anyone who wants to jump in, uh, is the Panama Canal expansion big for Texas? Is it, is it potentially big? And can Texas get prepared in time? I'll take a shot at it. Uh, what we see right now is, is we have seen some recent growth with, with the Lazaro Cardenas port opening up taking some containers from Long Beach, uh, and then... That, that, that port's on western coast of Mexico, right? That's correct, mm -hmm. the state of Michoacan. And it opened uh, on the or Pacific. expanded recently? It, it expanded. It, it, now they can handle bigger ships, uh -huh. which right. now they're bringing in the containers, the <coughs> container ships. We have seen an increase uh, in, in our ports of entry uh, from that traffic, uh, and it's going to continue uh, doing that. So you're absolutely correct. Uh, we have to be prepared to receive this, this increase in traffic uh, we see the increase already. Uh, you know, the Port of Eagle Pass has seen a, a big increase in, in the rail uh, traffic numbers, uh, and Laredo has not lost any. Uh, between Laredo and, and Eagle Pass, you're probably looking at over 70% uh, of the rail traffic on the southern border comes in through those ports. And then if you add Brownsville, which is in, in, in our area, uh, so we have a large uh, amount of rail traffic that comes in. And not only is it coming in through rail, but we also see the increase in the trucks. Uh, one thing that we have done when we talked about uh, uh, private uh, the partnerships with, with the private sector, um, we are limited when it's government owned, when it's GSA owned, 
But some of our ports of entry are owned by cities. Um, and I'll give you a specific uh, example. The Port of Laredo, specifically the World Trade Bridge, um, when it opened, it was uh, a donation from two families, uh, the, the Mullers on the west and the Faskins on the east. They donated the land and they gave it to the city of Laredo uh, to build a cargo lot. Prior to that, the trucks were literally lining up on 35. There had been some deaths, uh, people plowing into the back of those trucks. The mayor wanted to move the trucks out of the city. So the private sector came in, donated the land. The city built, built the, the, the cargo lot at, at, at World Trade and um, started off with eight, eight, lane, eight lanes of, of traffic there. Um, that was not enough. Uh, through the years, uh, you know, we've seen an increase in traffic. So, you know, we've been working on adding, when I was a port director at the Port of Laredo, we wanted to add seven additional lanes uh, because uh, we wanted to lessen the wait times. And working with the stakeholders, working with the, the private sector, you know, uh, in the city of Laredo, which is very gracious, uh, they are gonna turn over, in fact, this year, in 2012, they were supposed to turn over that property to the federal government, mm -hmm. to GSA. They, um, are probably gonna do that at the end of the year. They started building the seven additional lanes with a partnership through GSA, uh, TxDOT, uh, and uh, the, the uh, uh, city of Laredo. They built the seven additional lanes, now the World Trade Bridge, which handles uh, right around 5,200 trucks a day, uh, is now 15 lanes of traffic. So that, uh, uh, planning for the future, uh, it, although right now we, are able to lessen the wait times, but we're also, uh, the peak time for trucks was nine o'clock at night. At night, the traffic started to decline on those trucks coming in. Uh, the port has been able to move that back to six o'clock. So they're handling more trucks during the peak hours um, and they've lessened the wait times as well. So the partnership that we have, uh, and the only reason they were able to do that is because it was city owned uh, and it was not owned by, by GSA. But uh, that's a commitment that the city of Laredo has. They're excellent partners. Uh, they put in a lot of money. In fact, uh, on Monday, we're traveling to El Paso to go look at the pedestrian processing there uh, to be able to look at doing something similar uh, with the help of the city. Uh, and then here's where it comes because it's GSA owned facility. Uh, so be able to do a pedestrian processing that's, uh, that building where we're at right now is built in 1935 and the infrastructure that Nelson talked about is the same at most of the ports. Uh, you know, they were, they were built way before NAFTA came into play, uh, and we've had to retrofit almost everything, you know, go on provisional lanes and trying to, to deal with, with lessening of the, uh, of the uh, wait times. But in our area, we feel that Lázaro Cárdenas is gonna have much more effect on the ports of entry, uh, and we think that our Gulf Coast ports, like uh, Houston, uh, New Orleans, uh, and probably Brownsville is gonna see an increase in that trade uh, from Panama. I think I should comment something because the ports is an issue that I'm very interested on. Yeah, you've done some research on that. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I think that uh, we have to understand the context of the expansion of the Panama Canal. Mm -hmm. And it has, of course, uh, a great effect in terms of reduction of uh, transportation costs. It has an impact on the volume, the capacity of the cargo that is going to be uh, being able to, to be transported uh, because of the post-Panamax ships. But also has an impact in terms of the market share for maritime roads. For example, the roads that goes from uh, east coast from, uh, east, uh, coast from ports like New Jersey or New York towards west coast in South America or the uh, roads that go from um, uh, East uh, or Europe uh, using the canal going to uh, uh, the uh, Middle East or Asia, that has an increase, but that means an increase on transshipment traffic. But in terms of the impact for the U.S. ports, I think uh, it's going to, we have to be cautious. And uh, some ports are doing uh, improvements on infrastructure like uh, Houston, Miami, Tampa, uh, uh, Galveston, 
they are really improving, they're uh, modernizing their terminals, investing in equipment, because they want to be able to capitalize on these huge volumes, volumes that are going to be transported through the canal. On the other hand, that will benefit if they really take advantage of the traffic that is happening in the region. For example, over 30% of the trade that happens in Central America that goes to the United States use the canal. So that's, that's uh, an important uh, factor that the U.S. ports needs to look at because not everything has to happen in the, in the, in the uh, long roads or east coast roads. Uh, but on the other hand, one port that really will benefit is Houston port. Houston port because is uh, the the fact that he has the structure for cargo base. That means uh, the port has the capacity in terms of transportation connectivity because has great infrastructure. On the other hand, it has the inland capacity to distribute the cargo that comes from the canal and distribute it using I-10 to other parts of the country. So that's something that uh, we have to focus on uh, besides what is going to be the impact of the expansion of the canal in the, in the Panamanian economy, because that's something, it's another topic, but it's more uh, a domestic topic. Uh, that we really will benefit if we understand how the supply chain is going to be moved. And on the other hand, if the Panama Canal expands and there's more trade, that's benefit U.S. ports. But that will benefit a great deal Texas ports. Okay. I want to switch to from sea to land, if we can. Um, <laughs> uh, yesterday at our uh, kickoff event for the festival, Governor Perry told Evan Smith that uh, border violence is a serious problem and that it is affecting commerce uh, between Texas and Mexico. I was hoping to get from you a sense of is that border violence impacting trade? Is, I mean, you, Gene, you said that uh, you've, you've seen an increase in traffic even during the recession. So are you seeing the violence on the border or near the border having any impact on companies moving their goods across the border? No, we, we have not seen that. Uh, in fact, uh, you know, uh, what we see is, is the efforts of the Mexican government working in conjunction with U.S. governments mm -hmm. uh, and the protocols that we have, uh, you know, all at, at all the uh, uh, vehicle, uh, when you're going into Mexico, all the, the vehicle traffic and uh, also the, the cargo traffic, uh, they have uh, the uh, Mexican Army uh, stationed there working alongside with, with uh, the customs officers. So, um, you know, I think that if it was affecting it, the numbers would be drastically down, mm -hmm. and we don't see that. Uh, we see an increase, as, as I've already spoke, so we do not really see uh, any effect. Now, if you're looking at uh, your, your shops uh, across the, the border, uh, uh, yes, you see that uh, a lot of restaurants have closed, uh, the downtown areas, the stores. Uh, I think that is the traffic that we have seen, that the vehicle traffic has gone down during this period. Uh, and that, that is a, a choice that people make. I mean, they, they, they see the news, they see what's, what's, what's going on. Uh, and we see that uh, that traffic has uh, sort of you know, died down for that weekend traffic that used to go in by vehicle. I think Nelson has some sure. of that. <laughs> Thank you. You know, I guess first we have to understand why, why, the border, why the border violence itself. Obviously, it's cartel on cartel violence. Mm -hmm. Uh, as we upticked our border patrol, we doubled our numbers, put uh, billions of dollars of infrastructure in the sense of uh, towers and technologies on our borders. Well, that's also uh, hampered the drug trade for their trade routes. Mm -hmm. um, where before, I guess they would negotiate, well, well you're going to go this way, we're going to go this way, and you're going to go this way. Well, now, you know, they're having issues on just getting anything across, so whatever's left, well, they fight for it or to try to get across. The question should be is, sure, we have a 6 to 7% year-over-year increase, but what could it be if we were to quell that violence? Could it be 10, 12, 15? Perhaps companies are getting smarter the way they're doing business. The supply chain is getting stronger. There's everything from GPS tracking devices to automatic shutdown of rigs. To, there's a lot of monitoring happening and there's a lot of communications with Mexican aduanas 
and also with uh, Customs and Border Protection on issues and even the companies communicate with them when they see anomalies and so forth. So there's a lot of assistance. However, if they were to curb that violence, where could we be? And, and is, it, is, it, is it the United States' responsibility? Well, we have the Merida program, which is $1.8 billion given to Mexico and some other uh, and some area Caribbean countries to help quell nar narco trafficking. Uh, the new administration is already starting to talk about Merida 2.0. Um, and these monies are used to buy equipment, uh, train the trainer, uh, go out there and, and give them best practices, intelligence, and so forth. But as more jobs are created in Mexico, well, you have less delinquent delinquency. Mm -hmm. As more jobs are created in Mexico, well, then you have less illegal immigration or people trying to come over here for a job. So I think, you know, as we helped Colombia, as we helped uh, many other countries, you know, get over the hump, I think the United States should play a role because I think you you have a trickle effect, and if we if we bring that trade up, well, this this is the this is the the result that keeps on giving. For the United States, so um, you know, I, I think we should take a look at where could we go if we were able to do more in quelling that violence. Yeah. Am I jump, can I jump in? Oh, sure. Okay. Please do. It, you know, because I visit future, I will tell you that although our numbers have increased, and of course NAFTA has done wonders for Texas, but as I meet with businesses that are considering Texas. A question, that question keeps coming up. What about what's going on in Mexico? So think about that. There could be so much more opportunity. And ideally, it's a great partnership that could happen between Mexico and Texas. And, and you know, companies are interested, but they do fear the violence that's going on in Mexico. So I, I agree with Nelson. That number could be so much higher if what was going on in Mexico, we, we could kind of soften it up. But also I think our border communities suffer. Because when I travel with them, uh, you know, now Brownsville does well with economic development. But they get asked that question over and over again. Oh my God, you're right next to Mexico. Is it safe? See, so the perception is it's one that's very difficult to overcome. Laredo, how do you distinguish, no, no, what's happening, the bodies that are hanging are in Nuevo Laredo, not in Laredo. No one wants to go. I mean, they read the newspapers and think about it. They also know that they're only reading what Mexico's allowing you to read. Because we hear about so much more, much more worse that's happening. And so there is a negative perception there. And I think that if, if that was not happening, there would be tremendous opportunities for Mexico and Texas to do business. You know, I, I want to also add something that Jean said about uh, border crossings. I think ideally, because different entities own the different international crossings, one of the best things that we could do is that we would do better coordination. We seem to compete versus providing a service. And, uh, and, and that's something that I hope that one day we'll be able to, to do is that we do better coordination within our international crossings because we could better serve our customers. And, and uh, the other day I read something that was very important to me because they were saying about how many people cross through border cross our international crossings to come to San Marcos uh, for shopping and what it means to that community. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's like we as Texans, I think, it w uh, and again, I'm not sure on the number, but I think it was something like we spend $300 the Mexican shoppers spend $750. So it not only helps San Marcos, but it helps Texas. So there's so much more that could be done if the violence wouldn't be there in, in Mexico. And during those times, those peak periods, some of those, some of those border crossing times are three, four hours plus. We've still got to check them. Yep. But what if, so we're, we're putting these barriers up that Again, we're limiting our potential. Yes. Incidentally, we saw an increase in, in number of permits this year versus last year. They're up. So there's more people coming in into Texas to, uh, to do shopping. Isn't that great? And we'll accept them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I, just, I just completely agree with uh, Secretary Hope. I mean, uh, unfortunately, uh, the reputation in terms of seeing Mexico as a lo location 
uh, a, a place to locate a business has been uh, damaged. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, we at Texas A&M, we have conducted a lot of studies with, for corporations to really understand if the cost of security has an impact in the cost of operations for their business. And uh, the, what we, we understood is companies that want to locate uh, in, in the border region are uh, postponed their decision because of the violence. On the other hand, corporations that are already in the border region, for example, in Chihuahua, it's a hot spot, are continuous expanding and they're they're growing and they're uh, putting more investment because they know how to do business but the most important because their supply chain cannot be just changed as just relocated because they have their suppliers there and the cost uh, we just I want to, to take on, on the previous question. Yeah I say the, the uh, Panama, uh, Panama Canal will have an impact but on the other hand also, we have to be very cautious, don't, don't over-exceed or overlook the, the expectation because if we see the, the trade happens not through the canal. Mexico-US trade doesn't happen uh, uh, directly uh, or have an impact directly on the canal because it happens because of the NAFTA highway. Mm -hmm. So that, that's an issue that we have to consider. We really, in terms of the capacity, the opportunity, that the infrastructure that is in place in the border region needs to be uh, uh, understood as a strength for the companies that are located there. So it's, it's a sensitive uh, topic. And on the other hand, also, we have done these studies for corporations, and they have told us just putting preventive risk uh, management security procedures or strategies will uh, help them or even uh, uh, have security, pay for security, is, is less costly than to lose the opportunity or the competitive advantages the border region offers. So probably the best approach will be uh, to, for Mexico to enforce the rule of law, of course. Then it will be, uh, and, and that's, that's a strategy, hopefully we, we, we can see it for the next government, to uh, disrupt the, really the financial pipeline of the criminal organization. That's, that's a, a huge topic. And use more uh, uh, technology and, and, and security intelligence because uh, we, we have seen, uh, we have compared the technology that these criminals use versus what is existing in the country. So I think it's, it's a secure topic, but I completely agree, has uh, impacted. On the other hand, we have to really consider that the companies that are there understand that the supply chain is not uh, relocated, it will be not probably the best idea in terms of the supply chain. Hmm. Well, um, I have more questions I could ask, but let me uh, see is, is, if there's anyone in the audience who has a question. Yes. You were talking about businesses coming to the United States and mostly about What about tourism? You know, you talk about Mexicans coming to the market, but what about you know, US citizens? How is that going to address the flight? One of the things that uh, the cities uh, along the border are doing is uh, they're setting up flights uh, to fly from uh, uh, Brownsville to uh, Monterrey. Uh, Laredo is going to start a uh, 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 a flight as well uh, come December from uh, Laredo to Monterrey. Uh, Monterrey has, has also uh, start, uh, started flights and we've seen an increase because uh, I, I spoke to the port director in San Antonio uh, uh, this last year. They saw an increase in, in people coming in to San Antonio <coughs> traveling by air. Uh, but we also see an increase of people that are traveling uh, to land. So, um, you know, to, to answer your question, uh, it looks like, like people are, are, are traveling by air but we do not see the numbers uh, coming to the United States. Going to Mexico, uh, we have seen a decrease in vehicle traffic, uh, which means less people are traveling uh, in, in, into Mexico. But we see an increase in air travel. Generally, the tourist, the tourist destinations like Cancun or uh, Ixtapa, things like that, they're still 
full. Uh, so they're getting in quite a bit of, of traffic. Granted, you know, it's, those are not necessarily their, your hot spots. Your hot spots are primarily the roads in between major cities, especially on the northern border. Well, the northern Mexican border are you know, south from us. The, um, that's really what, what Gene's saying. That's why people are flying. But generally, when you get to the destination, you're fairly safe. Anymore, like if you'd be in New York or Chicago or Los Angeles. I travel there quite often myself, and uh, I, don't feel like I'm, I don't feel unsafe. If I can add to it, uh, you know, I met with the governor of Quintana Roo, uh, which is in Cancun, and uh, they're very concerned because, as you may have read, uh, the state put out an advisory uh, saying that, they did not, that our state did not recommend that you travel to Mexico. But you have to understand, as a state, we have a responsibility to tell you. We're not forbidden you to, to go to Mexico, but we're just telling you that it could be dangerous. And like Nelson said, in Cancun, you know, there, it is somewhat safe. But what we see, the reports that we see, is that you never know. You may just be at the wrong place at the wrong time. And so it's our responsibility as your state to tell you, just be aware that this is going on in Mexico, and we want you to know that. Uh, but the, we met with the Secretary of Tourism. We have opened lines of communication. We visit with them often before we put out an advisory notice. Uh, they come to my office. They meet with the Department of Public Safety, which is the entity responsible for putting out these orders. So we're very concerned. You have to understand what's good for Mexico is good for Texas and vice versa. But we also have a responsibility to our citizens to just provide them with that warning. Uh, but they are quite concerned because tourists from Texas are very important to them, just like their tourists are very important to us. So our tourists continue to grow, but I've, I also have seen and, and heard that there has been somewhat of a decrease. But Cancun is doing fine. They're, they're having a lot of other tourists from Can Canada and, right. and so forth, so, so they're doing fine. But they, they don't want to lose the Texas tourists. And a lot of it is cartel on cartel violence. It's, you know, you're not necessarily going over, you're the target, you know, unless you're doing something questionable. But uh, normally it's, it's cartel and cartel violence that you see. Crossfire, well, you can get caught in the crossfire, unfortunately, and like what uh, the Secretary is saying, being at the wrong place at the wrong time. And just to have caution, and if you're, if you're careful, uh, you know, I, I've never, again, I, I don't feel unsafe, personally. There is, there is a, um, a lot of investment is being done on dredging. Uh, Houston has a uh, cypherical well, 45 feet depth. Uh, post Panama uh, ships needs 50 uh, feet depth. And uh, the, the, the work is worse. Not every port in the world can accept post Panama cables because of the geographical uh, situation. But there, that's what I mentioned. It. What, uh, Port of Houston can capitalize is on the transshipment, the movement of commodities that are going to pass through the canal so they can then redistribute it. So uh, dredging is very costly, and not, uh, not all the ports have the vision to accept these huge uh, ships. But it, uh, of course, uh, uh, what will benefit really uh, uh, in terms of, of uh, uh, trade is capitalizing the NAFTA highway that I just said, but also the transshipment that is going to happen in the maritime roads. So dredging is happening, and, but if it requires, of course, investment, and many ports in the United States are, are really investing on that. If I can add that, they're including moving bridges, because you know there are some bridges that the ships can't go under. So, so the ports are getting prepared. Uh, I know in the Port of Corpus Christi, you know, they've got the harbor bridge that they've been trying to move because they can't, certain ships can't go through there. 
but it's $300 million. Where do you get it? So, is that a uh, is that something where they're they're looking to the federal authorities for money, or is that is there any way the state legislature might get involved? No, I mean they, we've been looking. Or I say we. I still consider myself transportation. I can't help myself. It's in my blood. Um, you know, they've looked at private-public partnerships. They've got some of it funded now, <laughs> and so a part of it will be told. The, the, the existing lanes will not. The new lanes will be. But the most important thing for them is that they can't get those ships to their port because they can't cross that bridge. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, years ago they said that uh, Highway Department did not think big enough. That's why we didn't build enough roads. Uh, when they were building bridges, they didn't think ships would be that big either. So. And then we then we start thinking too big, then we get criticized for thinking too big. So yes. You touched on it a little bit earlier. Just just a question, a general question about the new Mexican government and what you all expect in terms of changes on trade policy, if any, uh, continuity, uh, what what you're kind of seeing already and what you expect the next couple of years. Nelson, you were there. <laughs> I, I meet i I've been meeting with them often. I was there in fact uh, two uh, two weeks ago. Um, meeting with some of their transition team and working with them and giving them policy and information so they can better understand what the issues are. Some of these folks are, are new to border or new to, to some of these issues, so I'm trying to give them a crash course over the next few months. To, but that's a question that's been asked by a lot of corporations. Are things going to be changing? You know, I think things are going to be changing for the better. I don't think, you know, they have to, under, they're, they're understanding that they have hundreds of billions of dollars of investment at this point, and any type of change or unsurety to these corporations would not only dampen their growth, but also dampen any new uh, investment in Mexico. So their goal is to you know, steady the ship, continue as it going, and I think they're gonna look at improving some of these policies as we move forward. One of the things that I, that I have been talking to them about is improving the ports of entry on the Mexican side. How you approach our ports of entry in roads and or whether that's the fast lane approach fast lanes or the century lanes which are the trusted shipper or trusted traveler programs is is very important because if we can better approach that port of entry even if we don't do anything on our side that still improves our thoroughput so these are things that we're saying since they do have some money for for, for infrastructure we're trying to figure out ways what ports can we focus on that would give a most bang for the buck and also let them do more exports. By doing that, obviously they solicit that to corporations on what they're doing, and that brings, if you build it, they will come. So I don't, I don't see um, major changes. I think I see improvements. On the, on the uh, security side, in talking to them with there, and I spent uh, a day actually at the, at the Secret Secretaria de Marina, which is the, uh, uh, the, the Navy, there's uh, Secretary of the Navy's uh, headquarters in Mexico City talking issues with Merida and, and future programs. I think there's going to be, uh, what they're, they're, they're focused on quelling the violence. They're also focused on Merida 2.0 and seeing how perhaps in the future we could, the U.S. could get more involved. The president has said, or, or the, the, the president-elect has, has mentioned that he would now allow or consider allowing U.S. Uh, uniformed troops within some of their troops. So that's, that's encouraging because, you know, what they need to do is not continue to put Band-Aids on the issues. They need major surgery. And the idea of, of, of getting serious about this is what needs to happen. The U.S. is, I, I believe, serious and will get more serious because it's only going to help us at the end. So I, I think it's, it's steady as she goes. Uh, they're going to be making some announcements from what I've been told the first hundred days of the administration. Some of those will hopefully be to improve border infrastructure through uh, uh, you know, some, some heavy investment on those ports of entry where it makes most sense. If I can uh, chime in. Um, we had a, uh, first of all, I agree with, with the comments uh, that Nelson ha has uh, said and stated. Uh, we had a, uh, somebody from the uh, transition team uh, come to one of our conferences uh, about three weeks ago in Laredo. And he clearly uh, recognizes we had one-on-one -on -one sessions with him all the work that we do daily with the Mexican government. Uh, you know, we, we, we work daily with, with Sedena, with the Mexican Army, with, with, uh, with the Navy, the Marines. Uh, they're doing operations on the Mexican side. 
Uh, we keep contact with them you know, on a daily basis. I have them uh, push to talk. Uh, so what they're saying is that they recognize the work that has been done and that, uh, that the president-elect has said that he will only enhance all, already the work that has been done by the prior administration. Finally, probably comment on that. Uh, it has to do with the um, friendly environment for the business community. And I just see uh, that the relation will be strengthened. It will be in case. And if we think, uh, for example, the relation that is existing in key sectors, for example, automobile and aerospace in Mexico, there are booming sectors. And if we see the Mexico government is committed to enhance those clusters, and uh, if we think that most of the components that, uh, that goes in the cars, for example, electronics, the, the high tech, or the softwares for uh, 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 audiovisuals in the cars are coming from US corporations, that the, is the only interest for uh, the relation between the both countries to continue uh, uh, supporting each other. And if we think, for example, the aerospace is booming, it's just, in Mexico, it's just have uh, 260 co new companies in aerospace. And only 10% of that are Mexican suppliers. The rest, and most of them, are US corporations. That is, is, is telling you how important is the foreign direct investment uh, of U.S. corporation in Mexico and how uh, the Mexican government is interested on protect the, the, that relation. Last question. Well, first of all, I don't think it will impact the, the, the malls in San Marcos because that traffic is legitimate traffic that crosses our borders with, with permits, with, with, with border crossing cards or, or passports. So that, that will not be affected. Uh, you know, how secure is the border? I can tell you that since 9-11, you know that we, our lives are, are different. You go through an airport, uh, you know, now you have to go through TSA. Uh, that would, didn't exist prior to 2003. Uh, by by uh, forming the, the Department of Homeland Security, we brought 22 agencies under under the same roof. Uh, so what that has done, uh, we have essentially uh, set out more technology, technology that didn't exist there before. Uh, so it has enhanced our ability to be able to secure the border uh, as we now know it today. Uh, what will that do to the foot traffic, uh, you know, that comes in? Uh, uh, I really couldn't tell you right now because, you know, um, the border is, is, is a very long stretch from Brownsville to San Diego, California. Uh, and, uh, and it takes 24-7. Uh, uh, I have always stated that in order to secure the border, you have to work 24-7. You cannot lay back and you can just say, uh, you know, we struggle every single day with our traffic. And the reason we struggle with it is because we have an enforcement mission to secure our borders. But we also have a mandate to do that and facilitate trade and facilitate visitors that are coming into this country. So we have to look at a balance. What is that balance at the ports of entry? Uh, in between the ports of entry, you know, the, our sister agency, the Border Patrol, has uh, deployed additional uh, equipment as well. So you know, I, I couldn't really tell you, you know, uh, that uh, with everything that we have today, there's not a single person that's going to walk. Uh, into this country, you know, I, I can't tell you that. But what can I tell you is that we have deployed more resources and more equipment that'll help us try to do that. And if I can add to it, 
when the governor says protect the borders, he says protect our state. Okay, and that's our responsibility. You know, when I was visiting a business recently, and they're on 24 hours a day, I asked them, I said, what are your fears out here? They're in the middle of nowhere. Uh, it's dark. And I said, what are your fears? I said, do you all have security? And he said, no. He said, we've got 23 strong men that uh, are here all together. But he said, it's the illegal immigrants. That's what we're protecting our borders from. Those people that come to San Marcos, those people that uh, buy homes in San Antonio, those are legal people. They've come with a visa to, be, to shop and do here. What we want to do, our priority is to make sure that we protect the state of Texas and that we provide protection for the people of Texas. That's our responsibility. I want to thank our panelists for a very enlightening hour. Thank you. Uh, it's now time for lunch. The Texas Tribune has arranged for a sampling of Austin's premier food truck vendors to serve lunch under the oak trees of the University's South Mall, just south of the UT Tower. Programming will resume at 1.15. Thank you.